Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here with Megan Kassebaum, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania and Curator of North America at the Penn Museum. We're in Natchez, Mississippi for the Natchez Literary and Cinema Celebration. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. So I want you to know a little bit about Nitty Grits. We are a network and have a lot of podcasts on it, but my podcast, Tip of the Tongue, is all about the intersection of food and drink and culture. And you're all about culture. Yeah, and food and drink. So So what I'm really interested in is a particular thing that I have noticed. So in natural history museums, so often you'll have the diorama of the search for food. Mm -hmm. And you've seen it in a million of Mm -hmm. these museums. And then they switch right to agriculture. And then everything is about religion, aesthetics, hierarchy, war, all these other things, and it's as though people stopped eating. And you don't see anything unless somebody has, you know, in the museum, a a beautiful plate that's hand-painted or a silver goblet, which ordinary people didn't use, you know. Right. So why is that? That's a fascinating question. And the way you've posed it, I think, is different than the way a lot of anthropologists would pose it. But I think your observation is spot on. So, I mean, I think that we think as a culture of food and particularly food sort of gathering as something that is done by all animals, that is different somehow from the things that make us uniquely human, which are those things that are then discussed later in these exhibits where they do focus on art and religion. But we didn't stop eating. Well, we obviously didn't. And I think that the fact that in those museums, they portray eating as something that is sort of a basic human need rather than a part of our culture leads to it being sort of left out in those later periods, um, where I think one of the, the pieces of my work that I think is the most important is the flip side of of both of those coins that you said is sort of pushing the importance of food forward, food and eating and food gathering forward in time, but also pushing the culture and the religion and the aesthetics and the art backwards in time to recognize that cultures that were hunting and gathering and not yet agricultural we're also incredibly dynamic social beings that, you know, had belief systems and had art and did amazing things alongside all of that food gathering that they had to do. Right. So it works both ways. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions maybe about those hunting and gathering populations is actually that that they didn't have time to do all those other things, that they needed to spend all of their time gathering food in order to have enough to survive. And the studies that have been done on modern hunting and gathering populations tell us that that's absolutely not true, that hunting and gathering peoples actually had much more free time and much more ability to do all those other things, and that horticulture and agriculture and the types of food production that come later actually take up much more of our time. But maybe fewer people. Yeah, it becomes more specialized, for sure, where a small number of people, especially if you look at 
you know, say if you put all those things on a spectrum from hunting and gathering through today, especially when you look at things like industrial agriculture today, where most of us have no idea where our food is coming (laughs) from or how it's grown. You know, I think that's especially the case. And then as you move closer to that boundary between hunting and gathering and agriculture, that those lines are maybe a little bit more blurred and probably a larger portion of the population was involved in agricultural production, but certainly the process of agriculture is what allowed people to, some people, to step back from food production and instead become full-time artisans and things like that, which I think is what leads to people focusing on that stuff in the later periods. Because they just take food for granted and the other things seem fascinating. Yeah, it's new. It's, it's what's always been here as opposed to what's new and exciting. And again, I think that's the corrective that archaeology maybe can offer is to say, you know, food obviously stayed important. And I think more and more people in sort of food studies disciplines in anthropology and sociology and history are recognizing that. But archaeology can also say, and these other things that you act like weren't there before <laughs> were actually already there. And, and hunting and gathering populations were capable of a lot of the same stuff that we associate with agricultural civilizations. And so I think some of the changes, too, that people look at are not due to agriculture itself directly, but through greater populations and other kinds of things that perhaps did come from agriculture, but um, not absolutely directly. Yeah. I mean, there are, of course, always counterexamples that you can find of populations that are pre-agricultural, that are particularly capable of undertaking these other types of endeavors and then also of agricultural populations that are not capable of undertaking those things and maybe don't go as far as other agricultural populations do. And I think, you know, at the risk of sounding like it's environmentally determined, I I think it is environmentally based. You know, it's not entirely based in that, but in the lower Mississippi Valley, for example, where we are right now, we're talking about an incredibly productive natural environment. And thus, hunters and gatherers didn't need to work very hard to get the food that they needed and, to survive. And they had such diversity. Oh, yeah. I mean, every type of plant that you could potentially want, not just the normal animals that you might find elsewhere in sort of the eastern woodlands part of the United States, but also these incredible riverine resources, just endless supplies of fish and turtles and frogs and all of the things that kind of come along with the Mississippi River I think made this area kind of unique prehistorically because people just had access to an incredible abundance of food resources. Yeah, I mean, even alligators and crawfish and yeah. all of those things. <laughs> those are yeah. on two ends of a spectrum, one that I would not want to try and catch <laughs> and the other that I would be very willing to try and catch. But but yeah, it it opens up all sorts of resources that people could eat, but also resources, and I think this is really important, that were very stable. So resources that didn't, you know, come and go with a, a six-week window. Exactly. Yes. And also that didn't necessarily fall apart in the presence of drought or a flood season. You know, these are species that are adapted to a riverine environment. And so they can deal with floods, they can deal with droughts, and they're still going to be there and be fairly easily accessible to people who need them. So what do you think also of the issue of the way we talk about food and basically leave out 
the native people in terms of their contributions. I mean, I, I think that, yes, that we've often left out African-Americans. There are all kinds of people that have been left out. But I think even in our conversation today, as we're trying to find the people that we left out, we still leave out the native people. Yeah, I agree. It, it was one of the things that made me really excited when I was asked to speak at this this conference, because I think that now at least, and this is an important corrective, but now at least it would be hard to talk about Southern food and to not talk about African-American food waste. Right. You know, right. everyone recognizes now that that, that that is a population that was left out of these histories for too long, and thus they now occupy a pretty important role, which they should. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree that Native groups are often left out, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the lack of relationship that contemporary Americans feel to the people who occupied this land before then. You know, of course, some of us do have ancestors that might have had Native blood, but a lot of us don't. And so we really don't feel the sort of connection and particularly... And often don't live with them because they're still on reservations. Right. I mean, due to the sort of violence of the process of removal of Native American people, the Eastern United States, the Native people that that live in the Eastern United States today are very effective at not necessarily advertising that Native identity. People who grew up out West have a little bit of a different attitude towards this and Mm -hmm. I think are much more aware of the influence of Native culture on contemporary American culture But I think those voices are sadly absent, especially in the East. And again, I I mean, I'm a white archaeologist. I don't have any Native background. And so I I want Native people's voices to be heard, not just mine about Native people. Mm -hmm. But I do think that this is a place where archaeology can at least add something because we can be there as the people constantly reminding everyone else that there were foodways in this country for 10,000 to 18,000 years before Europeans ever arrived. And there's hard evidence. <laughs> there's lots of hard evidence, literal hard evidence, you know, that we, we rip out of the ground and can examine in excruciating detail. And so tell, tell us, since we're down here in the Mississippi Basin, what, what specific things are you finding? So you mean in terms of the foods that people are eating? So we see a couple of major transitions in foodways sort of through time. The, The earliest populations that came into the Mississippi River Basin undoubtedly came here because of its natural abundance. And they were hunting, gathering, and fishing populations. So they weren't growing any of their own food purposefully. They were just taking advantage of what already existed on the landscape. And so... When we look at those early hunting and gathering sites, we see a lot of evidence for the consumption of nuts. So things like hickory, acorn, walnut, pecan. But then we also see the consumption of all sorts of plants that were readily available in the natural environment. Some things that we still eat today, so things like persimmon, wild grape. Those things are things that, you know, people in this area would still be interested in, but then also all sorts of other plants that we now sort of see as weeds. They may still grow in our yards. We actually probably usually rip them out of our gardens. (laughs) And one of the first major transitions that we see in agriculture or in the history of foodways really down here is when people start taking some of those plants that they're the most interested in and moving them closer to their settlements so that they have easier access to them. And when that happens, we start to get a better sense of exactly which foods people were the most interested in because they were the ones that they chose to 
remove from their wild environments and bring and place in gardens closer to their settlements. So at that point, we see the development of what archaeologists refer to as the Eastern Agricultural Complex. And this is a group of plants that people here in Eastern North America actually domesticated for the first time. So they manipulated them so much that the plants changed, the genetic makeup of the plants changed in order to become more productive for the people who are eating them. And so we see a lot of plants that fit into this. The ones that we still maybe would recognize today are sunflower and squash, but there's lots that we don't recognize anymore as food. The one I always like to use as an example is a plant called Ketopodium. Ketopodium is basically a, a North American version of the South American plant of quinoa. If you look at the seeds, they're almost identical, except ours is really tiny. And it's interesting to me now that quinoa is like this big health food craze. And <laughs> everybody, you know, flies it in from Bolivia when I'm like, it's growing in your backyard <laughs> right now and you don't even know it. But those sorts of plants are still around, but we really no longer consider them food. So throughout all of that time, people are eating these plants. And then, of course, they're also relying really heavily on the animal populations. So, of course, we see massive amounts of deer all across the eastern United States. Very popular food. But here in the Mississippi River Valley, we also see a huge emphasis on those aquatic resources. So fish, including some fish that today, you know, are considered kind of trash fish by fishers, mm -hmm. but clearly were very popular and very beloved, I think, by by the native populations in the region. And then sort of the last transition, the last major transition that we see before that point of European contact is when corn is introduced to the region. And corn is a Mesoamerican domesticate. So it was domesticated in Mexico originally, came up into the eastern United States, and interestingly, I didn't talk about this today, but it it actually got, it was the acceptance of corn in the lower Mississippi Valley, and particularly in this Natchez Bluffs region where we are right now, was very slow. So while other populations in the surrounding areas were starting to rely on corn really heavily, and we know that people here in the Natchez Bluffs knew it existed, you know, we find one piece here and there every once mm -hmm. in a while, they didn't seem that interested in it. And I thought about including that today because I think it's, a good reminder that native foodways were highly variable. So I can sort of talk about these broad patterns as if they're apparent across the entire eastern United States and that they're very broadest they are. But in each population, there were things people liked or didn't like. And corn didn't take off here until pretty late. And we, we're still working on figuring out exactly why. why? Yeah. yeah. Any speculation? So a number of things. So one of the things that I think was probably really key is that they didn't need it in the same way. Again, coming back to this idea of just the incredible abundance of the Mississippi Valley, while other areas probably faced occasional food shortages, might have to really think about what they're planting and in what order in order to get the, enough food out of their gardens, people here didn't need to worry about it. And right. so if, if something was was not that abundant this year, then you had... Instead of oysters this year, you're going to have frogs or, you know, you're yeah. going to find some other substitute that still just happens. Exactly. And so I just don't think people needed it in the same way. And corn um, as a plant takes a lot of work. It's mm -hmm. not an easy plant to process. And so I think if you're faced with just a cr 
incredible abundance of food. And then someone's like, hey, we have this new plant and it's really delicious, but you have to do all these steps in order to make it edible. You know, that people might have been like, no, we're, we're cool. Like, right. We know. don't need to do that. Yeah. No. So I, I think that's potentially one explanation. And when you talk about the work that it took to eat it, what are you talking about? So the corn foodway in Native North America, when we talk about maize, about the plant, we're really not talking about the sort of sweet corn that people picture when they're eating corn on the cob today. This would have been a plant that's maybe a little bit more akin to the feed corn that we still grow all across the Midwest. But so in order to to consume corn and particularly for it to give you the nutrients that you need to have a balanced diet. You have to process it in a variety of ways. And what we we know a lot of Native communities were doing was nishnamalitizing it. So basically mixing it with with lye. And in the form of ash. Or generally like in the that. form of ash, yeah. And cooking it for a very, very, very long time. So one of the ways that we as archaeologists can track the, the corn food way, sort of passing through Eastern North America is that you have to see or you do see pretty dramatic differences in the types of ceramic vessels that people used in order to do this. There's a really great work being done um, at the site of Moundville in Alabama that shows that when corn enters the foodways there, you see the, the development of this particular type of pot that we call the Mississippian Standard Jar that basically would have been a pot that could allow you to cook things for a very, very, very long time without as significant loss of heat and the liquid and all of the things that you don't want to lose in the firing process. So we see that really clearly at sites like Moundville, and it's one of the things that's missing here. So even when we see corn become a food in the Natchez Bluffs, become a food that's actually being eaten pretty regularly, we don't see that parallel shift to the Mississippian Standard Jar. And again, we're still kind of trying to figure out why that's the case, um, a, a graduate student right now that I'm working with has has a lot of theories on this. Um, and one of the things that, that she's talking about is sort of the types of foodways, the types of resources that people might have been relying on here in this region right around Natchez might have allowed them to sort of think about corn in a different way. So acorns are another food that takes a massive amount of processing in order to eat. And so if they were used to eating acorns, they might have already had some ideas about how they could process corn without needing to develop a brand new technology. So yeah, that, that process leads to basically eating corn in the form of hominy rather than eating it as popcorn or corn on the cob or some of the right. you know variety of other ways that we eat right. it today. And, and we know that when that's, that whole system wasn't followed, you had people who were having pellagra and all those things, which was a 20, early 20th century problem for you know a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, definitely. But, but clearly even Native people knew that corn was not providing the complete nutrients necessary without that sort of processing. You know, the, the sort of niacin issue that goes along with plagra became, I think, clear everywhere because they, they knew they had to process this right. in particular so, ways and had to eat it alongside other foods. So why do it if yeah. you don't have to? Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, if you go out, I mean, even me, who's a, a totally inept hunter, fisher, or gatherer, could probably survive in the landscape of the lower Mississippi Valley because there's just so much readily available food here. I've often thought that one of the reasons that Cornbread is not that popular in New Orleans the way it is in other parts of the South where 
it's just a staple food mm-hmm. is because of that failure to really do an early mm-hmm. adoption of corn. Oh, that's so interesting. I'll have to try tie that into I, I mean, the work just, that we're doing. Just a thought that yeah. I have. I mean, you know, not not a trained person, but that's that's something that I've always thought. You know, there was so much else that you could use. Right. And then when you have um the people from Europe come and they're bringing in their needs for flour right. and, and wheat. So, you know, and so you see the parallel to that in biscuits, mm-hmm. but you found biscuits and cornbread often in the same, on the same table. Yeah. Whereas in New Orleans, cornbread is, is not always there. I've never quite thought about the fact that I don't think I've ever had cornbread in New Orleans before, but but I think you're right, you know. That's that's really interesting and it would be actually interesting to think through if those could have similar causes. You know, I I don't mean to imply that people down here didn't eat corn at all. They certainly did by mm-hmm. the late period, but it takes it, you know, a good many centuries to get picked up on here as mm-hmm. as compared to to other, other regions. Places, yeah. yeah. It's just one of those things that it's like, well, what kind of modern implications are there to that? That's something that I I think is is possible. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of modern implications, when we think about cuisine, we often think about regional cuisine. And that in the past, just as it is in the present, is partially based on availability. You know, so what foods are available to you? are going to form the baseline of what your cuisine is. And then you might add exotic, crazy things to the top of that. But it's usually not what's going to form like the very the basics. Well, and if you think about New Orleans as the port city that it was, and before everything was urbanized and the, the, what, you, what you see today is so different from the landscape as it used to mm-hmm. be, you had so many... Native peoples, different tribes coming to New Orleans using the river that you had all these things that they could bring from wherever. So that even added to the diversity that was just naturally there. Yeah, absolutely. So when I teach about the Mississippi River's role in prehistory, I talk about it as the interstate highway of Native North America because just as the interstate highways today are where you see the weird little truck stop that has the best tacos in the entire world. Or the, um, or the best pimento cheese. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, those were these communities along the Mississippi <laughs> River Valley, you know, because everyone was traveling the river both for long distances and also for short. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it was it was the mode of transportation for m- many, many things. So, yeah, certainly I think you saw if not food itself, which sometimes could be hard to transfer depending on its perishability, but at least the ideas about Mm -hmm. food and the recipes about food, I'm sure transferred in these areas and probably led to both diversification of food in these regions, but also maybe a little bit more regionalization. You know, so when you think about like the the barbecue wars of the American (laughs) South, you know, and and it's like people having access to both Carolina and or South Carolina, North Carolina and Alabama barbecue doesn't actually mean that we've got like now a hybrid style of barbecue that mixes all three. It means that everybody is like, no, this one is disgusting and this other one is the best. And so, you know, I, I when I think about Natchez Bluffs cuisine, I, I often wonder if that exposure to a bunch of other things also made them be like, oh, this is our thing. We're just going to stick with our thing. And we may try all these other things, but 
we want something that's our our own. I I think I think there's a lot of that that mm-hmm. and just the sense of identity that comes from it and all of that. Definitely know that for example, jambalaya in New Orleans and Cajun jambalaya are two different things. Right. But yeah. they're both jambalaya. Right. And just as this barbecue is also barbecue, it's just different. But people will fight you if you try <laughs> to put tomatoes in a Cajun jambalaya, whereas it's not even a Creole jambalaya if you don't put tomatoes in. Right, right. Yeah, so that sort of thing is like what I, as an archaeologist, dream about being able to know <laughs> about my communities. It's like, what was the thing at Feltis, the site that I excavated for my dissertation, where they said, oh my God, you'd be crazy to add blank ingredient, or like, oh my God, you'd be crazy not to. And that sort of stuff is really, really hard for us to get at. I'm sure. Both, I think, because we can't talk to the people, so we can't deem it important. We can maybe say presence, absence, was it there, was it not? But that could be explained by so many other factors. But then sometimes we can't even say, was it there or was it not, especially with things like flavorings. You know, so we tend to be good at identifying animal foods, so meat foods, and then we also tend to be good at identifying fruits and and seeds. But when it comes to things like spice-type flavors, herbs, greens, those are things that don't preserve in the archaeological record, and those things added a lot of flavor to foods. And so our recipes, if you can call them that, that we create as archaeologists, I think are always missing some of that flair that we're so confident about when we have written recipes in cookbooks. So what about peppers and things like tomatoes? Yeah, so we don't see those things in Native North America, at least not in Native, what is now the United States, prior Mm -hmm. to European contact. But that's not to say that they didn't have ways of flavoring things. They're just probably not quite the flavors that we think about today. So one of the best examples that comes to mind for me right away is we do fairly regularly on archaeological sites find the carbonized seeds of the sumac plant. Mm -hmm. Um, And sumac is a flavoring that's quite common um, in a lot of different foods, both from within the United States and outside. So we do think that sumac was probably a flavoring that was utilized the way we would use a spice or something Mm -hmm. like that. But all the spices that we as contemporary Americans think about, you know, are really associated with with the spice trade and are coming from really far away. So probably when we, you know, when I as an, a white archaeologist close my eyes and try and imagine what native food tastes like, I'm probably really wrong because I think I'm I'm missing so many of those flavors. So what about filet? That's important to me being from New Orleans. So that's a fascinating question that I don't know the answer to. So my my understanding is that that's not something that would have been available to people here. Why but, not? Well, what is filet made of? It's it's the dried leaves of the sassafras tree. Oh, the sassafras tree. Which is native yeah, here. Yeah. So I guess then maybe the right thing to say to the question of whether they would have had that is they might have had the, the ingredients for it and whether or not they happened to have dried them out and used them in that way and realized that it, you know, has this sort of thickening capability. You know, I don't, I guess we don't really have any way of knowing. So some of the, the journals of the, the early Europeans who came 
talk about it mm -hmm. um, and how it's used as a thickener in stews and things like that. Interesting. So they talk about it and they discover it through these through, observations. Yeah. Well, honestly, you might have just discovered just a, a plain point of ignorance on my part about that in terms of whether those were utilized. And that probably stems from the fact that because so the time period I work in is from about it's called the woodland period so the earliest dates are about 500 BC and then it goes up to about AD 1000 at the latest and I work on a few sites that go later than that but because of that you know I I tend not in many ways to look very closely at the ethnohistoric record partially because it's not super applicable uh, to the time period that I study but also partially because of the inherent flaws with that record, you know, that the, that they're, these are native practices being viewed through a European lens. So I, with some exceptions, have tried to stay kind of far away from doing that. So that's, you know, that in particular is something that I haven't read, but, but it certainly implies, I guess, that people might have been doing it much earlier on too. I would have to look through the various archaeological reports that sort of report on the plant remains recovered at sites. And I wonder if we could find evidence for that. Um, I mean, all you would need really would be the leaves of the sassafras. Right. So the leaves themselves are something that Probably leaves in general don't, don't, don't preserve. So basically the only way that a plant remain is likely to preserve in the archaeological record is through carbonization. So it has to fall into a fire and it has to burn hot enough to get rid of all that organic material and just leave the carbon behind. And so we tend to see this in seeds, we tend to see it in wood, we tend to see it in nutshell, things that are pretty hard. But if you burn a leaf, it just disappears. Yeah. So when we're talking about greens, whether leaves that might be used for things like filet or leaves that might have been eaten as greens, we tend to have to rely on some secondary evidence for it, you know, that the plant itself is present in the archaeological record thanks to its carbonized seeds, but we don't really think they ate the seeds. And so maybe the seed is there because they were eating the greens. One great example of that is the plant purslane. We do think they might have eaten the seeds, but the seeds are very tiny, but it has delicious leaves. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, it's likely that they were eating the, the leaves of purslane and potentially also the seeds. The one other way forward with this type of question, and this is maybe where I would want to look to answer your question about filet. This is not my area of archaeology, but people who do micro-botanical remains, so basically things that, I, I always laugh a little bit at that term because I have to identify my seeds under a microscope, so to me that's micro, <laughs> right. but they're going another step smaller. And so people are looking at both phytoliths and pollen grains, and these are two things pollen most people are familiar with. Phytoliths are these tiny silica bodies that are present in all plants. They're basically like itty bitty, unusually shaped grain, grains of sand. And these things preserve very well. So phytoliths are made of silica. They'll preserve forever. Pollen preserves very, very well. And so people are starting to take samples from archaeological sites and, and sample them for phytoliths and pollen. And that can give us a better understanding of what was present at the site without needing to fall into a fire. Right. Um, now, the harder thing with those, so everything comes with its benefits and its drawbacks, 
The drawback of this is that it's really hard to tell what is there because it was food versus what was just growing on the site. Sure. Um, because you're not getting them from specific contexts like a cooking fire, or the inside of a cooking pot, or a trash pit. Most of these things are just being pulled out of the soil. So, you know, that would maybe be the place to look. So I guess what I'm going to go home with from this is like, <laughs> can we look at the phytolith record to see the leaves of the sassafras plant showing up in cooking areas? And if so, maybe that would be evidence of phyllae. So I'm going to leave you with this thought. So we talk about gumbo and we say that there are, especially if you go way back before refrigeration or anything like that, there are traditional pairings in gumbo because of what was available when you were making Mm -hmm. it. And so we say that gumbo represents the three continents, America, Europe, and Africa, Uh because the three different thickeners for gumbo, filet, roux, and okra. Right. And so I think we often talk about okra, we often talk about roux, but filet is just there and it had to have been there for a very very long time right well i will look into this for sure and and i imagine that this is just a hole in my knowledge and that there's probably archaeologists out there that will roll their eyes when they hear this and say (laughs) of course we knew about this but i think it's it's such an interesting point because it it does do things that are so important to modern cuisine when we think about it, like add texture that is recognizable. And flavor. And, mm-hmm. and it, it has both texture and flavor, unlike something like cornstarch, which gives you a change in texture, but really has no taste. Right, right, exactly. And I think that adding these sorts of ideas to our understandings of particularly early native cuisine could do so much to sort of personalize it. To, I guess I would almost use the word to repeople the past in that way, because as archaeologists, we can get really stuck on like identifying is this seed from this plant or this plant or this plant or this plant and forget that a person probably collected that seed and cooked that seed and might have been rather annoyed when they dropped it in the fire, you know? (laughs) So I think those sorts of things that the sort of thing that you're talking about is something that could be really good that comes out of these conversations between people who do modern Southern cuisine and people who study the ancient past. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me today. I was very happy to do it. Good. You have been listening to Tip of the Tongue on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.